Kennedy is assistant professor at Brooklyn College, which is part of City University of New York, where she teaches African and Caribbean literature, writing, and performance. Rosalind is one of those rare creatures who is both an excellent scholar and a critically acclaimed creative writer and artist. She has been widely published in numerous journals and anthologies, and she's the recipient of numerous awards, fellowships, and creative residencies, including the Fulbright Award and fellowships from the Woodrow Wilson, the Mellon and Ford Foundations, Poets House, and the Franklin Furness Fund. Her most recent book, Island Bodies, Transgressive Sexualities in the Caribbean Imagination, published by University Press of Florida in 2014, is a comparative pan-Caribbean study examining how those in the Caribbean and in the Caribbean diaspora both work within and resist the region's binary gender systems and heteropatriarchy. So it's a real pleasure then to welcome Rosalind this evening to present to us her thoughts on the most homophobic place on earth with a very important question mark, <laughs> Caribbean myths and reality. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Thank you all so much for coming. I understand that this is um, a very inconvenient time to the university calendar. So I really appreciate Kate Quinn and the Institute of the Americas hosting me. And again, Alison for making the connection. Um, Alison is one of those academics who really lives and practices the ethics that she also writes about. So I'm very appreciative to have her as a colleague. So as some of you might know, in 2006, Time magazine infamously declared that the Caribbean is, quote, the most homo homophobic place on earth. But this is only one of many similar statements. The question mark in my title might have indicated to you that I disagree with Time and others' assessments. But I asked myself, how can I dismantle this construction that remains so popular that we might actually refer to it as a myth? We can begin with what I am sure people in this audience know is the literal definition of homophobia, fear and hatred of homosexuals, right? And while phobia is Latin for fear, fear is actually not what is most commonly associated with the term homophobia in the global north. Instead, hatred, revulsion, discrimination, at best hostility and at worst violence are what the term brings to mind. And this is especially true in relation to the portrayals and reporting on homophobia in the global south, especially the Caribbean and Latin America. So I think by examining some of the different facets of homophobia in the Caribbean, specifically violence, discrimination, and hatred, we might get closer to the reality and further from the myth. So I'll begin with violence. And I want to start by saying there is specifically homophobic violence in the Caribbean. There is too much of this violence, and too often it results in injury and death, and too rarely it results in any kind of meaningful intervention or change. Since Jamaica is often singled out as the worst perpetrator of homophobic violence in the region, I'm going to focus for a moment on that country. So homophobic violence has been documented in Jamaica by several non-governmental organizations, such as JFLAG, the Jamaica Forum for Lesbians, All Sexuals, and Gays, locally, and the Human Rights Watch Organization internationally. Between January 2013 and March of 2014, these are the most recent statistics that I could get, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which is part of the Organization of American States, reported that there were 770 acts of homophobic violence in 25 reporting member countries. 
and that includes nations in North, South, Central America, and the Caribbean. So of course there are many countries that didn't report at all. I mean, these statistics are not perfect, right? Of the 594 attacks resulting in death, only three of those murders were attributed to Jamaica. One ninth of the number reported in the United States of America, and an even smaller percentage of the number of homophobic murders listed in Mexico. And these statistics are available online if you want to look at the entire Excel spreadsheet, although it's in Spanish, so just a little heads up about that. Even if we assume that there are problems with the reporting from different countries and that countries are underreporting, these numbers hardly seem to qualify Jamaica as the most homophobic place on earth. And yet statistics do not typically drive the stories of virulent, violent homophobia that circulate in popular media. Murders in Jamaica often include violence that lends itself to spectacle and sensationalist reportings, such as burnings, machete chops, stonings, and point-blank shootings. These kind of murders, even though they take place in another country, receive far more attention in the USA then, for instance, a trans woman who was left to die while EMTs look on and laugh, which is an incident that happened in the United States, or LGBT people in the USA or England whose lifeless bodies decompose for weeks before they are even discovered and, or identified. These are the statistics I was able to find on homophobic violence in England. I actually wasn't able to find any statistics on homophobic murders. I assume that means you, have, you don't have any at all. You probably have fewer than many other places, but presumably there are some murders. I wasn't able to find those statistics, so I'll leave those up. I won't read through all of them. So again, I cannot overstate the horror of any murder, whether or not that violence is made a spectacle or a media sensation. The examples of intimidation, beatings, rape, and murder in Jamaica, not to mention the representation of the same in dancehall music, lend credence to the arguments describing exponential Caribbean homophobia in a rhetorical term that it is not unlike how right-wing US, US American fundamentalists use images of New York City or San Francisco gay pride to demonstrate why those cities are present-day Sodoms and Gomorrahs. Caribbean homophobic violence is real, and it has a context. It is particularly frustrating to me that music and religion are often the only local context provided to explain this supposedly exemplary Caribbean homophobia. The Time Magazine article stated that Jamaica has, quote, the highest, the world's highest murder rate, end quote. And the next sentence adds that, quote, rampant violence against gays and lesbians has caused Jamaica to be called the most homophobic place on earth, end quote. But the author makes no connection between these two statements. In a country with the highest murder rate in the Caribbean and indeed one of the highest in the world, the large number of murders of men who desire men should not be surprising. Similarly, in a country in which rape and other violence against women is commonplace, the rape of women who desire women should not be surprising. My point is not to imply that there is no need to address specifically anti-homosexual violence, but to point out that this is only one kind of terrible violence that exists in Jamaica, the Caribbean, and elsewhere. And at the, towards the end of my talk, I'm going to explore why there is such a preoccupation with specifically homophobic violence within the region. But I'm going to move on now to discussing laws. Laws are in some ways the easiest measure, the easiest method to measure discrimination because they are both codified and official. You can look them up and read them and compare them. And though in most of the Caribbean, sexual intercourse between men 
is officially and explicitly outlawed, there is actual significant diversity within the laws of the region. So in Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands, Guadalupe and Martinique, and the islands affiliated with the Kingdom of the Netherlands, including Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao, you have exceptions. Same-sex intercourse is legal in these territories because it is legal in the countries that colonize them, which creates a particular freedom that depends on a particular unfreedom. In Martinique and Guadeloupe, France's legal codes both affords protections and extends certain rights, such as access to the Pacte Civil de Solidarité, the form of civil union that they have, that's been available to both same and opposite sex couples in France since 1999. So those rights are extended to Martinican and Guadeloupean citizens. And as of 2007, Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao are required to recognize same-sex marriages performed elsewhere because those unions are legal in the Netherlands. Among independent Caribbean nations, Cuba repealed its legal prohibition of homosexual acts in 1979, while Suriname and Haiti are notable because they have no laws that mention same-sex activity, either to prohibit or to allow it. Though one activist, who was the director of Suriname Men United, reminds us that, quote, stigma and discrimination are still rife, even though homosexuality is not prohibited under the Surinamese constitution. While there are laws against sodomy and increasingly against women's same-sex sexuality and even the definition of sodomy varies from territory to territory in the Caribbean, these laws are rarely officially enforced. In Cuba, Jafari Allen observed that, quote, the arbitrary and capricious Ley de Peligrosidad, the law of dangerousness, which is still on the books and is variously interpreted or ignored by police on the street, provides a sentence of up to four years of psychiatric therapy or prison for the sort of what he calls mostly interrupted campiness and mariconiera that he witnessed and participated in on the streets of Havana and Santiago. Indeed, these laws serve as symbols of national, nationalism and parameters of acceptable behavior, and thus they are justification for vigilante actions, whether in the press, in the pulpit of a church, temple, or mosque, or most often in the street, where harassment, intimidation, and even murder have occurred. So these laws are popularly known to exist, and people will sometimes take the law into their own hands. Some of these Caribbean laws share an emphasis on criminalizing public revelation as well as presumably private sex acts. So one scholar, Peña, writes, quote, even in the severest period of enforcement, private homosexual expression was never the main target in Cuba. The gravest crime was not same-sex sexual acts per se, but rather transgressing gender norms in ways associated with male homosexuality. In other words, appearing visibly or obviously gay. And of course, that's not written down what that means, but everybody kind of knows what it means. Part of the reason the legislation of gender conformity and visible homosexuality are not often officially enforced, although there are exceptions, is that they include no specifics regarding what behavior is indecent or what constitutes visible homosexuality. Indeed, in Trinidad and Tobago, Cuba, and the Dominican Republic, laws reference the need to protect and enforce public decency, a concept that is linked, again, to visibility. According to Peña and Hran, Cuba's 1979 revision of its penal code, 
quote, clarified the association between escándalo público and homosexuals, public scandal and homosexuals, and expanded sanctions against visible homosexuality. Though the determination of what acts might, deemed, might be deemed to outrage public decency remains fluid and subject to interpretation by the court, by and large, the law has been in interpreted to mean any sexual intimacy other than anal penetration between men. So laws, of course, are more than rules, even though we know how effective rules can be in regulating social behavior. Laws are official rules of the government, often revealing in reverse the state's ideal citizen. Regarding gender and sexuality, the ideal Caribbean citizen is a gender-conforming male, as is true in many other regions of the world. The intense focus of the state gaze on gender-transgressive male homosexuals and the public discourse against effeminacy and male homosexuality that have been explicitly tied to emerging national discourses about a virile, masculine Caribbean nation and society. And this situation, I would argue, exists throughout the Caribbean as newly independent states sought and continue to seek to consolidate their national identities and as non-independent territories seek to clarify their identity in relationship to and separate from the present or former colonizer. Those who violate the law are subject to government punishment and should, for the state some reason not carry out that punishment, vigilantes encouraged by those same laws might step in, as has been widely published, publicized in cases in Jamaica and elsewhere in the region. And even when Caribbean communities accept gender non-conforming and same-sex desiring individuals, which happens more often than you might think, I agree with Omasheke Tinsley that, quote, the self-consciously representative texts of black masculinic leaders can, never can accept those individuals because they must protect the definition of the ideal male citizen and must provide mechanisms for enforcing that ideal. As of the publication of Island Bodies, my book last year, the process of solidifying the concept of the ideal citizen began unfolding in most of the Dutch Caribbean. So in 2010, the Netherlands Antilles ceased to exist as an official political entity. Aruba, Curaçao, and St. Martin are now independent states within the Kingdom of the Netherlands, while Bonaire, St. Eustatius, and Saba are overseas municipalities of the Kingdom. And it's interesting because these changes in some ways result in less political autonomy than the Netherlands Antilles Foundation that was created, Federation that was created in 1954, but it's encouraged millions of Dutch Caribbean people to consider what citizenship means and who a real citizen is. For instance, controversy has swirled around what a Bonaire priest called the five immoral laws that relate to gay marriage, abortion, euthanasia, legalized drugs, and legalized prostitution that the Caribbean territories have supposedly had to enforce as of October 2012. The Netherlands government anticipated some problems integrating these laws, and so they gave the Caribbean a few more years to culturally adjust to the change. So again, you see this relationship with the colonizer. The same concerns are expressed in Curacao through the questions, who is a youth de Corsu, a child of Curacao, and who is not? What characterizes the child of Curacao? And by extension, what is authentic Curacao and culture? And who is a good child of Curacao? The Bonaire priest stated, quote, we don't deny that gay people exist here, but they are not looking to get married anywhere on Bonaire, end quote. 
So again, it seems clear that the real or the proper citizen of the reconfigured Dutch territories is an Afro-Caribbean person who, if not heterosexual, adheres to what I call in the book El Secreto Abierto, the open <coughs> secret, sharing in appearance, if not in fact, the new presumed common national identity through particular values and heteronormative behavior. While the enforcement of both the legalization and the prohibition of same-gender sexuality vary in different places and times, the enforcement of gender codes is much more common, regardless of the laws that are in place. Indeed, in Carib global communities, both in the region and the diaspora, public gender transgression is more problematic than private homosex. For example, in Cuba, the dangerousness and the scandal, the escándalo público that I was talking about before, of male homosexuality is not men having sex with men, which as one scholar points out, quote, is understood as fairly commonplace. But rather, it is the failure to perform the strict script of masculinity and ombria, which you might call idealized attributes, rights, and responsibilities of manhood, that is always classed and raised. Right? Behel similarly, similarly concludes that the condemnation of homoeroticism in modern Cuban society can be linked to a condemnation of anything that could be considered a transgression of gender roles. Indeed, the codes that comprise unofficial official policy explicitly relate more to gender conformity than to sexuality, precisely because these are often seen as intimately connected, if not inseparable. Kamala Kempadu explains that in the Caribbean, quote, heterosexuality is assumed to be a central component of gender identity in many people's lives. It is this powerful set of ideas and practices that heterosexuality defines gender, which is, of course, not what we teach our students, those of us who are teachers in the room, but that's how people often think and how they live their lives. Right? But that, that assumption that heterosexuality defines gender also serves as a reminder that any examination of Caribbean sexuality cannot be conducted separately from gender. So yes, there is both official and unofficial discrimination. But given the laws against homosexuality in Russia and Eastern Europe, for example, and given the unofficial discrimination that continues even in this country, I do not think that the laws of the Caribbean justify the moniker of the most homophobic place on earth. So I'll talk a little bit about hatred. Hatred is an element of affect, and as such, it is more difficult to analyze than official laws. But a recent study produced by CADRES, the Caribbean Development Research Services, has produced some surprising results. In 2013, CADRES conducted a study of what's called Attitudes Towards Homosexuals in the Southern Caribbean. It looked at Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, and Guyana. And the results of this study surprised the surveyors, surprised academics in the region. Um, I'm trying to get them to write more articles about this, and I think I might have to do it myself, because it surprises everyone who sees it. Right? In each of these countries, Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, and Guyana, less than a quarter of those surveyed thought that it was acceptable to discriminate against LGBT people. And between 71 and 82% of people feel that violence against LGBT people is discrimination and is therefore wrong. Um, and if you're wondering, these numbers are actually on par with a study that found that last year, 68% of people in the United States of America acknowledge discrimination of LGBT people. So the number that they found is actually more accepting than in the United States of America. 
The same study, the Kaja study, shows significant support for anti-buggery laws and very little support for gay marriage. I think that's my next slide. So this snapshot of Kaja's findings is extremely informative and certainly discounts the contention that the Caribbean is the most homophobic place on earth. Criticisms of Caribbean homophobia too often point to a primitive or barbaric mentality rather than serious cultural and historical analyses of systemic heteropatriarchy and sexism. Such criticisms clearly state that Caribbean homophobia is exponentially worse than homophobia in the global north. But the Kadra study and my analysis and that of other scholars demonstrate that it is not unusual for Caribbean people and culturals to be tolerant, if not even accepting, of sexual minorities if those individuals adhere to traditional gender codes and the parameters mandated by the notion of the open secret. You can do it, but you can't reveal it either in speech or in behavior. Within and sometimes beyond these boundaries, many people are able to live lives in the region that include same-sex desire, love, and community. The ability to comfortably and safely live such a life depends, not surprisingly, also on the individual's gender expression, class, geographic location, and color, among other factors. Based on all of this recent research, Caribbean people can be seen as tolerant <coughs> again, or are sometimes even accepting of the sexual minorities within their community, though they are hostile, as this slide shows, to attempts to change existing laws. This is especially significant because, as I discussed in the second and third chapters of Island Bodies, a number of Caribbean sexual minority activist organizations do not use the Global North rhetorics and strategies of identity politics and human rights but instead advocate as legitimate members of the nation state who have concerns that are part of and not separate from the larger community. And some of you may know of the ongoing lawsuits um, to try to overturn buggery laws in Belize and Trinidad and Tobago, and those are extremely problematic because they were not actually instituted by people in those countries. Right? And so the local activists are trying to have a different model, and people from the outside are saying, you need to overturn the laws, and you need to have gay marriage, and locally people are saying those aren't our priorities. So hopefully my analysis has convinced you, but I also, must also take issue with this overarching myth of the region's exponential homophobia and the accompanying narrative that posits the Caribbean as backward, as a backward area that through accepting LGBT, right, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights and tourism can join the modern developed world. Vanessa Agar-Jones explains that the current situation, quote, increasingly inscribes a narrative whereby metropolitan queers are mobilized to save local Caribbean queers from local Caribbean people. Such popular representations assume Caribbean exceptionalism as well as a profound lack of agency in the region that necessitates local sexual minorities being saved by international activists or through refugee status in the global north. When addressing the region as a whole, Jamaica is again typically singled out as a place where it is nearly impossible to be gay. Notwithstanding the fact that generalizing from one country to the entire region ignores how in relationship to homophobia, um, as Skeet points out, tolerance levels vary, right? If you think about a continuum, you might have St. Thomas, the Virgin Islands, Trinidad on one end, and on the other end, um, 
sorry, uh, yeah, St. Thomas and the Virgin Islands, Trinidad on one end, and Jamaica, St. Vincent and St. Lucia on the other end. The charge of a spectacular Caribbean homophobia extends to those regional territories that are technically part of the European Union. Agar Jones writes that in the, in the French Antilles, are often portrayed in France as, quote, gripped by both a conservative Christianity gone wild and a retrograde set of black cultural values in a discourse that draws the lines of radical cultural difference to ostensibly explain the homophobic violence that occurs in a place like Martinique, even when much the same violence can be found in a place like Provence in France. The challenge for those of us who study non-heteronormative sexualities in the Caribbean is how to acknowledge real and, yes, sometimes violent homophobia without endorsing the idea that the Caribbean is uniquely and exceptionally homophobic. Similarly, as I mentioned earlier, it's unfortunate that some funders and researchers rarely support or pursue an analysis of the link between other types of violence and the rates of anti-homosexual violence in the Caribbean. If one of those international organizations that provides money to document homophobic violence, there, all of this money has go, goes every year to so document the violence. Well, we did that three years ago. Do it again. Document the violence, right? If one, or, and also to try to um, the amount of effort that's put into trying to censor homophobic dance hall lyrics. If some of those resources would recognize that their kind of activism prioritizes certain kinds of visibly queer subjects over other victims of state and economic violence and denial of citizenship, then they might consider supporting an analysis of how homosexuality is used by Caribbean politicians to distract poor people from poverty, unemployment, lack of quality free education, and general disenfranchisement. Indeed, Kempadu points out that, quote, the lack of access to resources around which poor young black men can legitimately develop their masculine identity can also lead to heterosexual conquests and a hatred of homosexuality becoming strategies to reinforce their own masculinity and manhood. It must also be acknowledged that some Caribbean sexual minorities and sexual minority advocates agree with the exponential homophobia myth, whether because it makes their territory, right, their Caribbean territory that has less violence, look more developed, or because it can help them obtain international visibility and funding. One Martinican lesbian was adamant about how, quote, how very different Martinique was from a place like Jamaica, a place she understood to be a real and spectacularly unique site of homophobic violence in the Caribbean. She understood Martinique <coughs> to be France, right? And technically Martinique is France, not a place in need of some sort of ideological development in order to become equal to France. Similarly, some Bahamians believe that local sexual minority activism is not necessary since, quote, the Bahamas is nowhere near as violent as Jamaica or Middle Eastern or certain African states. Other Martinican interlocutors suggest that in the absence of an ongoing and serious engagement with the lives of people on the ground in the Caribbean, such forms of, ad of advocacy actually serve to do little more than benefit the personal, political, and professional trajectories of the mostly diaspora-based advocates. Indeed, the region's reputation regarding gay rights is promoted by the strange bed bedfellows of local sexual minority activists, international gay or LGBT rights activists, and US American fundamentalist Christians who have targeted the Caribbean and Africa to promote agendas that are, right now, less popular in much of the United States. 
As Colin Robinson writes, quote, a new sexual order positions the global South as either backwardly homophobic in relationship to the sexually developed North, or as a primitive frontier where the dominion of Christianity can be preserved, end quote. This statement has been echoed in the last 20 years by a number of scholars who've written about the gay international and the Caribbean, Latin America, South Asia, the Arab world, and elsewhere. So I've been air quoting gay and LGBT in this part of the discussion because it is important to recognize that being gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender in France or England or Canada or the Netherlands is not necessarily the same as being a sexual minority in Cuba or Haiti or Trinidad. In fact, Alturi notes that, quote, the rhetoric of the homophobic Caribbean repeated by the global north is frequently rooted in a neo-colonial paternalism which misses the often untranslatable way in which sexual sexualities operate in non-Western contexts, end quote. As I detail in the second chapter of Island Bodies, the concept of the open secret, el secreto abierto, is a more popular way of dealing with same-sex desire in the Caribbean than the strategies of coming out of the closet, which are more popular in the global north. I define a secreto abierto, or the open secret, as a situation in which many people know someone is a homosexual, though the fact is not openly acknowledged. Instead of a mandate of constant revelation, such as that that exists in North America and Europe, in the Carib global communities, there is a mandate of discretion, which is not always the same thing as hiding. Right? In the tradition of El Secreto Abierto, the secret is not fully hidden, and so explicit <coughs> revelation is not necessary and could, in fact, be redundant. Other examples of untranslatable differences in sexual practices include the much documented fact that often macho men or the, and or those who are inserted in male homosex may not be considered homosexual in the Spanish Caribbean. The fact that some Haitians accept same-sex desire and non-hegemonic genders in themselves or others because they attribute it to an affinity with the voodoo goddess El Zuli Danto, and the persistence of the Mati tradition in the Dutch Caribbean. It is important to attend to these differences because they are not just linguistic. They refer to particular ways of knowing and being, and they create what Carlos Sassana calls circuitries of sociality, the way that we live. The well-known JFLAG report on the status of sexual minorities in Jamaica points out that, quote, the use of Europe as the standard of reasonable conduct in relation to sexual minorities is extremely problematic with regard to strong nationalist sentiments that prevail in the Caribbean concerning this issue, end quote. In fact, just as there are codes whereby some Caribbean minorities can be tolerated or accepted, there is also a long Carib global tradition of viewing particular expressions of same-sex desire as foreign. And there is a more recent tradition of viewing attempts to win gay or LGBT rights as neo-colonial, even in territories where the citizens are also part of the European Union or the United States. Indeed, the Netherlands implies that values and norms to which they adhere are universal, even as it imposes their own laws related to morality on resistant Caribbean territories. Accusations of neocolonialism would seem less accurate if international gay rights organizations based in the global north were more inclusive of southern voices. In this vein, uh, Colin Robinson, who's an activist in Trinidad, asks, quote, why is it that the global north does GLBT equality through domestic politics, 
but the global south has to do it through human rights and international law and foreign aid pressure. That's colonial thinking, end quote. Unfortunately, this thinking persists in attitudes towards Caribbean sexual minority advocacy. Ironically, if Caribbean nations and territories tend to view the advocacy of gay rights as pushing the nation back to a colonial state, many activists in the global north and some in the global south view such advocacy as necessary to bring the Caribbean into modernity. Too often, as Gloria Wecker points out, scholars see an unproblematic, unproblematic unidirectionality in the field of sexual globalization, a triumphant progress narrative and transfer of sexual forms from identi of identities from the West to the rest. So the successful integration of homosexuals and therefore advancement into modernity is typically judged by venues and vehicles for public affirmation and recognition of gay and lesbian identities and by the presence of LGBTQ social movements that look a particular way, political activism and public demonstrations that look a particular way, in particular gay pride marches, um, and we can talk about how the attempt to, to have those marches in the Caribbean has been kind of disastrous, um, as well as the decriminalization of homosex, the censorship of homophobic music, and the removal of blocks to gay-specific tourism, especially cruise ships. This is how we're going to save Caribbean gay people. If the terms in question are set by the global norm, then coming out and public, explicit, audible visibility will be prioritized, and Caribbean same-sex desiring subjects, perhaps the majority of whom participate in other behaviors and traditions, will always already be considered backward failures. What is too often missing in discussions about same-sex desire and homophobia in the Caribbean are the varieties of ways in which sexual minorities live and love and work for change, including taking seriously different traditions such as El Secreto Abierto or the Mati tradition. Indeed, Global North advocacy on behalf of the Caribbean, Africa, and other Global South locations regularly occurs without consulting people in those places and is, quite frankly, racist, imperialist, and short-sighted, assuming a pervasive, permanent, and unusual lack of agency among sexual minorities in the Global South. As Fran writes, quote, while scholars are quick to acknowledge that queer desires and lives are lived differently in other societies, hardly any effort has been put into understanding how such differences might also lead to different forms of resistance, activism, and visions of sexual justice outside of the parameters and paradigms through which we have come to measure these in the global north." Unquote. While extra-regional media and organizations tend to be very occupied with detailing the horrors of Caribbean homophobia, they are not often concerned with changing Caribbean attitudes towards sexual minorities, and even more rarely do they work with people within the region towards that change. And yet, Colin Robinson reveals that on his first visit to Jamaica in 2000, instead of an absence of community or people who were wholly paralyzed by fear, he found, quote, men, women, and transgenders carving out spaces for community and love and celebration amidst oppression in breathtakingly creative ways, end quote. Indeed, a number of Caribbean-based sexual minority advocacy organizations exist that are pursuing innovative and path-breaking strategies. So there's CAISO, the Coalition for the Advancement and Inclusion of Sexual Orientation in Trinidad and Tobago, Suriname Men United, 
Sassad, which is the Society Against Sexual Orientation Discrimination in Guyana, Sehovi in Haiti, Grenchap in Grenada, Grupo Orami in Cuba, the Women's Congress again in Trinidad, Hombres por la Diversidad in Cuba, and Overlorgen Carabiche Netherlanders in the Netherlands, the Organization of Caribbean Overseas. Um, so there's a lot of people who are working both in the region and to a degree in the diaspora on these issues. And in 2012, I co-edited a multimedia collection entitled Theorizing Homophobias in the Caribbean, Complexities of De Place, Desire, and Belonging. And it's available at this website, caribbeanhomophobias.org. We chose that website rather than theorizing um, homophobias because we wanted, hopefully, for this to come up when you Google Caribbean homophobias and not some of the other more problematic things. So the collection and its theme came directly from the first Caribbean Sexualities Gathering sponsored by the Caribbean International Resource Network, which we purposefully held in Kingston, Jamaica, and in which we brought together over 30 activists, scholars, and community workers from inside and outside of the region. I think we had 11 territories represented. One of the pivotal issues raised during our workshop meeting was the need for defining and redefining of homophobia in the Caribbean from a variety of perspectives, and more specifically, the need for theorizing about the different kinds of homophobias across the region. We struggled with the need to acknowledge, analyze, and fight Caribbean homophobia, and a desire to neither endorse the myth of exponential Caribbean homophobia, nor to endorse the notion that homophobia is the only topic that can and should be discussed by Caribbean sexual minority activists and scholars. When the concept of homophobias, plural, was raised, a lot of heads nodded in the room and a lot of ideas started to flow. We talked about violent homophobia, familial homophobia, state-endorsed homophobia, and many more, including the variations that exist in different racial and ethnic groups, different linguistic subregions, and different religions. Several of these overlap, but the acknowledgement and the delineation of the plural encourages a specificity and a level of nuance that is not always included when discussing homophobia in the Caribbean. I am now co-editing the Caribbean IRN's second multimedia collection entitled Love, Hope, Community, Sexualities and Social Justice in the Caribbean. It will come out in print um, in Sargasso, which is the, uh, the print journal from the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras, and then there'll be an online multimedia component that the IRN will sponsor. As you can tell from the title alone, right, Love, Hope, Community, the activist scholars and artists closest to the lives of Caribbean sexual minorities have a great deal to say about our realities. And the homophobias of the region, while very important, do not comprise the totality of either our experience or our priorities. Thank you. Thank you so much.